righty. Well, we'll take this opportunity once again to say welcome. We're glad you're here with us. And we were talking about this morning, just the Christmas season is here. The, it's December the 2nd, the Advent season is here, and it's just it's hard to believe. It seems like every year, the year just moves along faster and faster, and then you get to the holiday season and Thanksgiving, and it's just a, a fast pace all the way to Christmas. But it's certainly an exciting time as well. I'm sure for our kids down here on the front row, as they're getting ready and, and anticipating all that the holiday season has in store for even us as, as big kids. You know, there's just something mysteriously wonderful about the Christmas holiday. And we know what it is. It's Jesus Christ. But, and, and certainly with that comes so much joy and celebration. And, you know, we're entering into a season that has been known in Christian history as Advent, a time of waiting, a time of coming. And, and on the, the, the church calendar. It's a time for the church to come together and to focus our hearts upon that great mystery. Now, there's never a time of the year that we shouldn't be focused upon the great mystery of Christianity, but, but certainly the holiday Advent season gives us opportunity to think about that mystery, that mystery being eternal holy God who is immaterial. He's a spirit becoming flesh and entering into humanity, entering into time and space. God himself transcends times and space. There is no past, present, and future. It's all now to him. But that God takes on human flesh, enters humanity for our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the great mystery of Christianity. And... We want to make the most of this opportunity as we are celebrating the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. We want to take every opportunity that this season affords us to meditate upon that mystery, the wonder of it, the beauty of it, the, the majesty of it. And what we're going to do is each week we're going to be deviating from our study of the book of Revelation between now and Christmas. And what we're going to be doing is taking up an Old Testament text that is announcing and pointing the, the way that the, the, the Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming, the long-awaited one is coming. And we're going to talk about what those texts mean about Christ and, and, and how they encourage us even today to follow him. And so this series of Advent messages that, that we're putting together, I'm, I'm just coming, I'm calling O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which certainly comes from that Advent hymn of the same name, we're not singing it this morning. We'll actually sing it next Lord's Day. But the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And while Israel would have sung that song in expectation of Christ's first coming, we sing that song today with as much anticipation in our day because we're still awaiting Christ's coming. Not his first coming, the promised second coming that we've been reading about in the book of Revelation. And so Advent gives us an opportunity just to renew our love for Jesus, our, our devotion to him, our, our being captivated by him and preparing our own hearts for his coming. And so this Lord's Day, we're going to begin, the first Old Testament text we're going to be looking at is Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read today's preaching text now because the songs that we're going to be singing are coming from this text. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24. 
This will be the first Christmas text in our sermon series, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forevermore. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, this exposes our great need. This exposes why Christ had to come. Let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin our time of worship, focusing our hearts upon the coming of King Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read this Genesis 3 passage and prepare our hearts to meditate more richly upon it in the next few minutes, Father, we come to you and we thank you that buried in the midst of these curses is the promise of a Messiah. Lord, your greatest gift to us, Christ Jesus, our peace and our salvation, our Redeemer and our substitute. Lord, this Christmas season, we're reminded that it was you in Christ who stooped low to raise us up. You were born that we might become like Christ. Christ united deity and humanity, brought these two things together. The creator entered into creation for the sole purpose that he might live the life that we should have lived, die the death we deserve to die, that we might be reconciled to you through the forgiveness of our sins through his death upon the cross. Father, the person and work of Christ, these are the great tidings of, of great joy that we sing about this holiday season. Father, help us to see and to treasure Christ. In today's text, in this sermon series, in our study of scripture over the next few weeks, Father, may Christ become even more valuable and more rich to us than we've ever known before. Enlarge our hearts, even this morning on this first Sunday of Advent, to, to celebrate the good news of great joy. If we're honest, we can't understand the enormity of, of your salvation. We can't understand the enormity of all that Christ is and all that he came to do. 
So we ask you to help us. Help us to sing of your glory. Help us to sing of your goodness. Help us to sing of your grace. Help us to sing of the beauty of Jesus Christ in his person and work with hearts that, like Isaiah, are undone by you. We're undone by your holiness. We're undone by a God who has every right to judge us eternally, but who loves us with an everlasting love through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this holiday season and all that it brings to us. Lord, help us to make much of Jesus in our time together. It is in Jesus' name we do pray and ask these things. Amen. We read the text this morning, and so we want to continue to think about, as we talked about with our kids this morning, all this going on around here in this passage is God is announcing his curses upon Adam, upon Eve, and upon the serpent. Again, just remember what has happened. Eve has succumbed to the temptation of the serpent to eat the forbidden fruit. Adam, whose responsibility it was when he saw the snake come in to, to, to get it out. He, he was the gardener. He was the, supposed to guard the, the garden. He should have stomped the head of the serpent himself to get it out, to kill it, to remove it. But he didn't, and he abdicated that responsibility. And Adam himself also partook of the fruit there in the Garden of Eden. And then comes that day of reckoning where God comes looking for Adam and Eve and he announces the curses upon them. Um, What we read about there in Genesis chapter 3. What are the curses? For Satan, we're told the serpent, he will be utterly humiliated. The language is that he will move the rest of his life on his belly. may insinuate that previous to that he had legs but he'll be eating from the dust. He'll be, it's, it's a humiliation, it's defeat, it's shame. That's the, the curse that's announced upon the serpent. And then the curse upon the woman, that she's going to endure pain and childbirth. And with that, also a constant fracturing in her relationship with her husband. Her desire will be for her husband, and he shall rule over her, is what the text says. So Eve is bearing consequences, pain and childbirth fractured relationship in in, in the home. Also, we're told there in Genesis chapter 3 that the ground will be cursed, and this is a curse on Adam. Adam, as you continue to work the ground, now it's going to be hard. You're going to sweat. It's not going to come as easy as it did. You're going to sweat in your brow labor, which was originally designed by God as a joyous, fundamental part of being a human, now becomes a burden. Amen? Amen. I mean, I hope that we've had jobs that we enjoy and love, but they're not easy. There's a burden there, and it's, it's, that's a reflection of the shadow of the curse upon all of humanity. And then to crown it all off, we see in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust You shall return. Death is the capstone of these curses that God announces on the serpent, on Eve, on Adam. This sin that Adam and Eve have brought into the world now plunges them into what we read in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. That's now the the introduction of death into the world. And so what Previous to their sin and disobedience to God, the garden was just a beautiful, wonderful place of 
fellowship with God and intimacy and communion and everything went smoothly. There was no sin. There were no problems. Now, all of a sudden, it's a dark and dreary place. It's a deadly place. The Garden of Eden now has become almost a cemetery with dead people in it. Now, God's going to remove them, but, but they've introduced death into the garden. But right there in the midst of all of these curses, we read in verse 15 a, a, a note that shines brightly, a clear hope. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is where we begin our Advent sermon series. With Genesis 3.15, this promise to Adam and Eve, you've introduced all kinds of bad things into, the, into history. Not just into the Garden of Eden, but now your, what you have done will affect your children for millennia and millennia and millennia to come. And we're still impacted by it. But here's my promise. A Messiah who will come. The title of this first message is Christmas Hope in the seed of the woman. Christmas hope in the seed of the woman. We might say that the entire storyline of the Bible is contained here in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. The whole story of human history right here in verse 15. What I want to do with you in, in our time together this morning is show you how that's so show you how Genesis 3.15 shows us at least three things as it pertains to the whole of human history. The first thing is that it gives us a sobering picture of human history. I'm going to call it a sobering reality and a season of sentimentality, right? This is a sentimental time of season, the Christmas season, and it's a time when things we can kind of lose perspective. Genesis 3.15 brings a sobering reality in this season of sentimentality. And that's not intended to, to, to break the joy of the holiday season. It's to say you can't un really understand the holiday season unless you understand the sobering reality. It will enhance the, the, the celebration. So a sobering reality in a season of sentimentality. Then secondly, the centrality of Christmas. Our gospel hope. And the third thing from Genesis 3.15 a guaranteed conclusion to all of history. So let's look at these three things together here and see how Genesis 3.15 does bring Christmas hope in the seed of the woman. The first thing I want us to see is this sobering reality in a season of sentimentality. Look at the text again in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So the Lord, again, here is speaking words of judgment on the serpent here. And as he's announcing this, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and between the woman, and between your offspring and between her offspring. There's the key. Now he has now characterized the rest of human history will be characterized by this tension. From this moment on, God is establishing human history as one long record, ongoing record of spiritual conflict, of spiritual warfare. It begins right here. Across every age, in every decade, in every century, 
B.C., A.D., it doesn't matter. A terrible conflict will rage and continue to rage between two distinct classes of people. Everyone everywhere belongs to one of two classes. You are either seed of the serpent or seed of the woman. We're either in the grip of Satan, who in the New Testament we're told is the prince of this world. We're either in the grip of Satan or we are heirs of the kingdom by grace through Jesus Christ. Everyone in every time period, every epoch of human history has always belonged to one of those two categories. It includes us this morning. And between these two groups that have been going on ever since Genesis 3.15, all throughout human history, between those two groups, God says there will be perpetual hatred, perpetual enmity, perpetual animosity between the two, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. We can bring our study of the book of Revelation right into this, between the world and the church, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Isn't that what our study of the book of Revelation has been? God's grace and peace through Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor who are living in the world in the time between his ascension and his second coming. In this world, there's persecution. You've got uh, the, 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 uh, the dragon and his, his, his influ uh, evil influences, the world pulling us away from Christ. All of this finds its origin all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And we see this right from this. Right after God announces these curses, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we have, what, Cain killing Abel. Cain is seed of the serpent. Noah is mocked and rejected by his generation. Noah is seed of the woman. Everyone else in the world is seed of the serpent. Sit back and just think about that one for a minute. Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Israel and the nations, the church and the world, all throughout Scripture, you have these divide, divisions between these two groups. The people of God, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. And it doesn't stop in the New Testament. We have Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 3. When John the Baptist, I'm sorry, this is John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River. And, right, and he's baptizing and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees come out to be baptized by him. These are the religious elites. Right? These are the good church people. And John sees right through their hypocrisy. John sees that it's just, it's an outward thing. It's not an inward thing. He realizes in their heart there's insincerity. There's not affection for God. There's not love for God. There's not desire for God. And John goes directly to Genesis 3.15 in telling them exactly what class they belong to. You may be the religious elite. You may be the good churchgoers. You may be the church leaders. But you are a brood of vipers. What's he alluding to there? The seed of the serpent. He's actually saying, you are, church people, seed of the serpent. You do not belong to the seed of the woman. You're the enemies of the kingdom of God. And Jesus does the same thing in John chapter 8. The Pharisees were engaged in debate with him, claiming that God was their father. And Jesus responds to them, quote, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
And he was a murderer from the beginning. What's he saying? You're seed of the serpent. You may be the religious elite, but you don't belong to the seed of the woman. You belong to the seed of the serpent. And so here in Genesis 3.15, at the dawn of human history, we have an intimation that life for a child of God is going to be a life of conflict. We can try to deny that, but you're not dealing with reality. This life is hard for the Christian. And it was always intended to be. It's a denial of, of, of the curses to deny that. Now, it's not uncommon to be told that, well, if you follow Jesus, your life will become so much easier. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be so much happier. You follow Jesus, and your life's going to fall into place. You follow Jesus, he's going to fix everything. And praise God, one day that will be true. I'm not denying it's true. I'm just simply denying that's a future event. Here and now, we're in a battle. We're in a conflict. Our passage here is teaching us just the opposite of that, that to follow Jesus means you belong to the seed of the woman by grace, and now you will, in this life, be in constant battle against the seed of the serpent. Constant battle. And we've seen in the book of Revelation that serpent who matured to a dragon in Revelation. Man, he hates Christ. And he hates Christ's people. And he's subtle in his tactics. He may even take the form of a lamb to try to smooth things over. To try to make it look like you can be a Christian and still be seed of the serpent. Man, he's a, he's a crafty thing. And that's why the Christian life requires vigilance. That's why Paul talks about make your calling and election sure. Make your, your adoption into the seed of the woman by grace sure. Because those who've been saved by grace through Christ will be, start become looking like him. Looking unto Jesus. Being conformed to his likeness. You don't make your calling and election sure the way the Pharisees did by being religious. Studying the scripture being a good church goer. Now, those are means of grace, don't get me wrong, but those in and of themselves don't define what a Christian is. The defining characteristic of a Christian is one who looks like Christ, is becoming like Christ. And our passage here is teaching us that there is ongoing enmity and hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So this first Advent Christmas text points us to the sobering reality that we live in a war zone. And this Genesis 3.15 is a declaration of war. That's the sobering reality in this season of sentimentality that we need to be reminded of. Though the holidays are here, and there's a lot of great things going on, this is no time to Step away from the fight. Step away from the battle. God may use, I mean, Satan could even use this time when we're busy with other things to begin to infiltrate our heart with other things, other treasures that may pull us away from Jesus Christ. Even during this holiday Advent season, we continue to wrestle against Satan. It's a spiritual battle. 
It's a spiritual war that's going on now. But that's the sobering reality that this passage brings to us. Secondly, this passage gives us within the context of that sobering reality, that picture of human history, two lines at battle with one another, this passage also gives us our gospel hope. Just for the advent, I'm calling it the centrality of Christmas. Verse 15 again. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Notice the pronoun, he. Singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This passage predicts a climactic conflict between one individual and the serpent. One individual and the serpent. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. There are many, many seed of the woman by grace. Right? Cain was not. Abel was. Seth was. Right? Noah was. There's a lot of seeds of the woman. What is the one that he's talking about? Who's the one? He shall. Who's the one? Galatians 4.4. 4. Paul writes, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Talking about Christ there. Christ is the one seed of the woman that's being predicted here. It's being prophesied here. 1 John 3.8 tells us, for this reason that Jesus, the Son of God, was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. John there is identifying for us who this one is. It's Jesus. He was the one, the Son of God, who's been revealed to destroy the works of the devil, to enter into this battle against the snake and to do battle with him. Jesus is the seed of the woman, which God speaks even as he's announcing judgment upon the serpent. He's the one who's going to come and do what Adam was supposed to do what Adam should have done in the first place. Again, Adam's responsibility in the garden was to keep the garden. Keep it for God. That doesn't mean just keep it manicured nicely like we do our lawns. Keep it a holy place for the Lord. This was God's residing place. God is holy. We talked about it last week, God's holiness, his otherness. Mount Sinai was called the holy mountain. Why? It's where God went. There was nothing unique geographically about that mountain. It's because that's where God was. And likewise, the Garden of Eden was the place where God dwelt. It was the first temple, the first tabernacle. And Adam's responsibility was to, to, be, to keep the temple. Keep it clean. Keep it holy. And when the serpent comes slithering in uninvited... Adam should have stomped the head and gotten him out, killed him. But he didn't. So God sends a second Adam who's going to do what the first Adam failed to do. And that's the prophecy here. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is going to stomp the head of the serpent to kill him. But in doing so, the serpent will sink his fangs into Christ's flesh. And another example of Christ coming to do what Adam should have done but couldn't, think about the blame game. We talked about this with our kids this morning just a moment ago. 
when God came and, and asked, you know, where they were. Adam, did you eat? How did Adam reply? She made me do it. Eve, what happened? The serpent made me do it. Adam says, she may, she's the guilty one, condemn her. Eve says, no, no, the serpent's the guilty one, condemn him. Jesus, the true and better Adam, comes and says the opposite. When God the judge comes to judge sin and to pronounce sentence on it, Jesus does not do what the first Adam did. She made me do it. Judge her. Condemn her. Jesus does the opposite. Jesus says, she did it condemn me he did it judge me put it on me they are the guilty ones but put the curse on me let them live let me die in their place you see how Christ is coming and doing everything that Adam did wrong Christ is doing it and fulfilling it and we see this a third way not just not just in the blame game there where Christ says not, they did it, but put it on me. But also we see it in the covering of sin. You remember how when God sends Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, they're naked, they're ashamed. For the first time in their nakedness, they're ashamed, they hide. And God is sending them out of the Garden of Eden. They have to go, but they're naked. They had tried many different things to try to cover themselves, right? Fig leaves, none of it was sufficient. God did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. God provided the only adequate clothing that they could possibly have. He shed the blood of an animal and put animal skins around them. And they're picturing what the seed of the woman is going to do as well. In shedding his own blood, providing covering for Adam and Eve and for the seed of the woman. He's going to provide true covering for our sin. And this is the centrality of Christmas, the great gospel hope. The fact is, during this time of year, it's true every time of year, but there are some things unique. We as sinners are constantly, like Adam and Eve before us, trying to cover ourselves with. We try to cover ourselves up with religion. Right? We try to cover up our guilt. If I, if I can be religious... I have my quiet time today. I go to church. I'll listen to Christian music. None of that stuff is wrong, right? When you, I'm just saying, if we use that to try to cover our sin, we're no different from the Pharisees. We may turn to religion to deal with our guilt. We may, we may run to pleasure to try to hide from our guilt. I know I'm guilty. I've got to find something to make me feel better about it. Let me just, something to make me happy about it. Uh, it's, there's no shortage of things being offered to us during the Christmas season. Pleasures, delights that you can just go and get and try to make you forget your guilt before God. You may immerse yourself in the busyness of work, right? It's the end of the year. Sometimes you're trying to get things done. You're trying to make ends meet for your family. Just a busy time. I'm trying to immerse. I just got to stay busy. Got to be doing something. And that can be a, a covering to try to, I just don't want to deal with the reality, the sobering reality of what's real between me and this holy God. Charity. Again, what I'm bringing, I'm not saying any of these things are wrong. I'm saying they are not sufficient coverings between you and God to try to cover your guilt. But this time, charity, to try to offset our guilt. I'll make myself feel better. I'm going to 
I'm going to serve. Great thing to do. I'm going to donate. Great thing to do. Terrible as a covering before God. Look at how busy I am. Look at my giving. Look at my charity. Look at all the, the good things I'm doing. It doesn't work. Our great gospel hope is that Christ Jesus will come and provide a covering for our guilt that you and I cannot do in and of ourselves. To be a Christian is actually to give away all futile efforts that we often make to try to cover our sin. And you fill in the blank. I've only provided a few things. It may be unique to every one of us. You fill up, figure out what is it with you that you're trying to use to cover your sins instead of receiving the only adequate covering that God provides to hide our shame and our guilt before him, and that's Christ. Are you trying to cover your guilt with anything other than him? Well, then repent and return to the seat of the woman. Return to that baby in the manger. Return to the crucified Christ. Return to the exalted one we've been seeing in the book of Revelation on his throne, sovereign over all things. Repent, person-oriented. Return to your king. That's the centrality of Christmas. God in the flesh come to do what only he could do, what Adam can't do, what you and I can't do. We can't cover our, ourselves, our sin problem before God. Christ Jesus is our covering through his death upon the cross, giving up his life for ours. God's wrath poured out on him instead of us. And by grace, clothing us in his righteousness. That is our gospel hope. That is the centrality of Christmas. We've talked about Genesis 3.15 gives us a picture of all of human history, and it's a sobering picture. Two lines at war with one another. And really what separates those two lines is the centrality of Christmas. Jesus Christ, our gospel hope. Which brings us to the third thing. The third thing that Genesis 3.15 gives us, not only this picture of human history, the centerpiece of all of human history being Christ Jesus. Yes, his birth, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. But Genesis 3.15 also gives us within this context of human history a guaranteed conclusion, a guaranteed conclusion. And I hope you hear the echoes of our study of Revelation and what we're about to talk about. A guaranteed conclusion. Over and over again in Scripture, Scripture comes back to allude to Genesis 3.15. It keeps coming back to this text as being, this is where it all starts. This is where, if, if this was the way things were going, this is where things went off into a tangent. Now again, in the providence of God, <laughs> he knew it. But from our perspective, this is that point where things went awry. And there are allusions to this passage in the Bible that talk about how the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will come and overturn everything that happened in this passage. So, for instance, Psalm 72, verse 9, the psalmist writes that God's enemies 
will lick the dust. Who does that sound like? The serpent, who's cursed and, and is placed upon this belly to, to, to be humiliated, to be ashamed. To, to, you know, we still use this kind of language today with our enemies. You know, I'm going to make you eat dirt. What do we mean when we say that? I mean, I'm, I'm going to humiliate you. I'm going to embarrass you. I mean, God forbid it may mean physically. I'm going to lay you out and you're going to eat dirt. But you get the idea there, right? All right. And here, when the psalmist says, God's enemies will lick the dust, it's like the serpent, like what the seed of the woman will do to the serpent. And then in Micah chapter 7, verse 17, the prophet speaks of a day when, verse 17 of Micah 7, the nations shall lick the dust like serpents as they tremble before the judgment of Almighty God. So we have the picture in Genesis 3.15. All of human history is this battle between seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. We're still in that battle. But the prophecy has been the day is coming. The seed of the serpent, just like granddaddy before him, will lick the dust. This line of the seed of the serpent will lick the dust like serpents. And this is what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation. We haven't exactly got there yet. We're nearing it. But in chapter in Revelation, think back to chapters 12, 13, we're introduced to a dragon. What's a dragon? It's a, it's a serpent that's grown to maturity. It's Satan. It's the same, same serpent from Genesis 3.15 that's been alive all these millennia. And there's a vision there of that serpent, right? There's a pregnant woman ready to give birth. And that dragon has its mouth wide open, fangs wide open. The moment she can, she's in birth pains, right? The moment the child comes forth, what's the dragon intending to do? Devour it. And there's an allusion there to, think about when Jesus was born, Herod, every newborn child to be killed. What, what, what did Mary and Joseph do? They fled to Egypt. And in uh, Revelation 12, that child is... Swift away on eagle's wings. Protected from the serpent. Protected from the dragon. And then we will, we will read in Revelation chapter 20. John speaks of that ancient serpent, the devil, bound by Christ and utterly annihilated. Utterly destroyed forever in the lake of fire. I said at the beginning, Genesis 3.15 really does give us the whole message of the Bible. I'm not saying it's the only thing you need. I'm simply saying as, you, as Scripture unfolds, unfolds, you can go back and see, my goodness, <laughs> that's what it's talking about there. Genesis 3.15, this picture of humanity, the picture of history, it's a sobering reality. The promise of a Messiah, one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, and then this picture here of the seed of the woman, ultimately, once and for all, forever, destroying the serpent. The biblical message that we find in Genesis 3.15 is that Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the baby of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, the Lord on the throne, he wins. He wins. On that day, Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world and separation from God, and death, and all that, it looked like it was all over. Like the seed of the serpent had come in and ruined God's plan. 
dude, that was God's plan for his glory and the exaltation of Christ. That the seed of the woman would come, bringing glory to God, would defeat Adam and Eve's enemies and defeat that serpent once and for all. Christ wins. And Scripture tells us that you and I as believers who are just like those seven churches in Asia Minor, we're still in this world in this time until Christ returns. It's hard, right? I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding yes. We need to talk if you're saying, nah, it's easy. It's hard. It's a daily grind, a daily battle with sin, with the flesh, with Satan, with the world around us. The promise is, what was begun there will be overturned. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 23. I would commend this text to you this week. I hope you'll continue to meditate on Genesis 3.15 and Isaiah 65, verse 23. Pictures for us the very curses of Genesis chapter 3 overturned one at a time. Listen to Isaiah chapter 65. They shall not labor in vain. What was the curse? You're going to labor and it's going to be in vain. It's going to be hard. You're going to work every day of your life and you're making no, you're making no progress. You're not getting anywhere. The sweat of your brow. The prophecy here is they will not labor in vain. Something's been overturned there. The passage goes on. Or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. They shall not bear children for calamity. What was the curse? Pain in childbirth. Calamity in childbirth. Something has happened here. It's been overturned. The passage goes on. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. What was the curse? Separation from God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You can't be in my presence anymore. I'm holy. This is a sacred space. You have violated my holiness. You've sinned against me. I will not hear you anymore. But here, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will, something has been overturned here. Listen to this one. Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Well, that was Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, you had all of, all of creation in harmony with one another. But that's not where Genesis 3 left us. Man, we have, it's, it's unthinkable to think uh, about a, a lamb grazing with a lion. I mean, the lion will devour that poor little thing. Something has overturned the curse. And then this one, Isaiah 65. And dust shall be the serpent's food. What's the prophecy? What's the curse on the serpent? He will crush your skull. A, something's been overturned there. You're going to, 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 to put your fangs into his flesh, but he's going to have victory. That's what the passage here is telling us. Christ Jesus His victory over his is the guaranteed conclusion of human history. 
It's all about him. And the battle in this belongs to the Lord. He's the one who's going to take what Adam and Eve did wrong. He's the one who's going to make all things new. He's the one who's going to, through Jesus Christ, reverse the curses and bring to you and I the hope, the joy that we so desperately long for. It's God. It's Christ. And so in this Advent season, there's a lot of sentimentality going on. And it's a wonderful thing. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to begrudge that. That's not what I'm saying. But understand, don't see through the facade and keep in mind Genesis 3, the reality. It's a sobering reality. There is a warfare that's still going on. And Satan may still be using things during this season to try to pull us away from Jesus Christ. We live in a dark world, an uncertain world. Don't make the mistake of grounding our hope in sentimentality. The Christian hope is in the seat of the woman. The one that we listened to her singing this morning, Mary's song, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. He has looked upon his humble servant. She realized she was a sinner. And yet God in mercy was providing the Savior that he had promised in Genesis 3.15. And our hope is in the victory that that baby will bring to us at the cross, overcoming sin and, and overcoming Satan, which will one day be manifest fully uh, in consummation. This is the victory of the seed of the woman. And when that day comes, all malice will end, all tears will end, all animosity will end, all our tensions with one another will end, all our afflictions and oppositions will end. Advent's a season for rejoicing. Not because we've reached fulfillment. We're still waiting. That's what Advent is. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. In the first Advent, they were waiting for his coming. Now we're waiting for the consummate. We're waiting for that final stomp. We're waiting for him to be put in that lake of fire. The cross has already declared the victory. He's won. We're just waiting now for it all to be done away with. No more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. We're Advent, we're waiting, but we're not in despair. We're battling. It's hard. Some days we're having to, God, get me out of bed this morning. God, today I have sinned and I have guilt before you and I, my flesh wants to try to cover it in so many different ways. Lord, I come to you in Jesus Christ. But Advent, Christmas reminds us Christ came the first time and he's coming again. Is that where our hearts are this morning? That's our Christmas hope. Our hope in the seed of the woman, the baby of Bethlehem the man of Calvary, our victory in him.